All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Nightmarish, the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Um, my name's Olivia, and this is just a little little hobby of mine that I've decided to start up. Um, I've been obsessed with true crime since forever, um, and it was actually since my mother told me about this case that I'm going to tell you today. And it is pretty well known, but I think it's still really, really interesting. And I think the justice of the family of Tina just was not served. And um, it, it's really heartbreaking how this, how this case ends. Um, but without further wait, I will start it with you. So... Um, today we're talking about the murder of Tina Watson. So her full name was Christina Thomas, um, but she ended up marrying and adopted the last name Watson. So she was actually born in West Germany in 1977. And while she was still a baby, she was adopted and relocated to the US by Tommy and Cindy Thomas. So there's not a lot of information about her birth parents. There's no record of her birth name. So they kind of fall away from the picture at this point. They don't come up again um, since she was adopted so young, you know. Cindy and Tommy were her parents and that was her life that she knew. So she lived in Alabama with her younger sister. I'm not sure if her younger sister was the biological parents of Tommy and Cindy or if she was also adopted. But again, that's not really relevant to the case. Um, They kind of moved around the south to Louisiana and Birmingham as well. So there's not a lot of information about her younger years. But when she studied at the University of Alabama, she met Gabe Watson. And they started dating in January 2001. And it became more and more serious. And as it was becoming more serious, it was becoming more evident that Tina's parents did not like him. They did not like Gabe. And in fact, just prior to the wedding of the two, Gabe's mother, Glenda, invited the Thomases around for dinner. And Tina's mother, Cindy, said, why? Tina's marrying into your family, but we're not. So... They, they, they really didn't try to hide the fact that they didn't like Gabe or his family. Um, but apparently this didn't really bother Tina too much because she said her parents didn't like any of her past boyfriends. So she kind of, I mean, it, it would obviously be nicer if her parents did like him, but it, it wasn't the end of the relationship for them. And she had told a friend that, you know, her parents didn't really care for him. They're not greatly happy with him, but she loved him. And for her, that was enough to have faith in their relationship. And it wasn't necessarily a relationship that came easily to them. Tina had told friends that she was having family troubles and was in counseling with Gabe. And there's not a lot of information about this, whether or not the subject of that counseling was because Tina's family just really didn't like him or, you know, maybe it was something else. And it's also not clear whether or not they continually went to counselling or if it was just like a, you know, one or two visits. Around the same time as the wedding, there were a few other incidents that were quite awkward for Tina and Gabe regarding how much Tina's family did not like him. So Tina had once approached Gabe's parents and asked whether they would pay for the wedding 
in the chance that her parents chose not to because they didn't like Gabe. So it was pretty clear Tina's parents didn't want her to marry Gabe, but Tina seemed to be quite headstrong and she was going to do what she wanted. She was still close to Gabe's parents and, you know, whether or not her family was in the picture in terms of approving the, the wedding, she was going to go through it anyway. And at their reception dinner, the company, who I presume was like the wedding planner or something, said that they had done about 30 or 40 weddings by that time. And Tina and Gabe's was the worst rehearsal they'd ever seen. They said the tension in the air between the families was just so thick you could cut it with a knife, essentially. They said that Tina looked like she was on pins and needles. She looked so uncomfortable and so tense. Regardless of all of this, though, the wedding was on October 11, 2003, and apparently went off without a hitch. So it must have been that Tina's parents downplayed their distaste for the Watsons, decided it best for their daughter to be happy, and that she just found someone that she wanted to spend her life with. So two days later, October 13, 2002, Gabe and Tina left for their honeymoon in Australia. And they arrived on October 15th because, of course, Australia is on the other side of the world from everyone else. Very convenient for us. So, again, this honeymoon was paid by the Watsons. So Tina's parents weren't really in the picture of funding the relationship. And when they arrived in Australia, they spent a week sightseeing around Sydney which is about halfway down on the east coast of the country, if you haven't been to Australia before. And they did the touristy things. They went to the zoo, they held koalas, they went to the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Sydney Opera House and did all of those beautiful, lovely things. And then after a week there, they started on their trip up to Townsville in northern Queensland, which... If I'm honest, a bit of a random place to go. Um, It's like, it's a mid-sized city in Queensland. It's not, um, it's not like a big city you would go to. But the reason that they went was because they wanted to do a scuba dive in the Great Barrier Reef. So the Great Barrier Reef is, I think, considered one of the seven natural wonders of the world. It's a UNESCO heritage protected site. It's just this beautiful stretch of ocean on the coast of Queensland with coral and fish and other aquatic life. And it's really, really beautiful to go scuba diving there. And part of the reason they wanted to go was because they wanted to see the migration of a certain species of turtle as they pass through that part of the ocean. And the dive was initially going to be a present to Gabe to celebrate him graduating university, but it was Tina's idea to make her part of their honeymoon in Australia. On all accounts, Gabe was a pretty avid scuba diver. He'd done multiple dives and Tina had also taken up the hobby and she had been taking lessons back in the US in preparation for this honeymoon so that they could do it together. So on October 22, Gabe and Tina boarded the Spoil Sport, and this was a ship, a boat, run by a company that would take people out to the shipwreck of the SS Yongala, and they would anchor there, and they would dive around and explore the ruins, see the sea life and other things in the reef in that spot. So the SS Yongala was located in a part of the ocean that was 30 meters deep, I think that's around 10 feet, maybe. So it's very deep. 
Um, and the top of the ship came to a point that was 16 metres below the surface. So it's a little bit confusing, <clears throat> pardon me, to explain without pictures, but where Gabe, Tina and the other divers were, the ocean was 30 metres deep and the shipwreck began at 16 metres deep. So at around 9am, the company that ran the diving trip briefed all the divers on the dive they were going to undertake on the route other safety precautions and, um, you know, got them to sign those consent waivers and everything like that. And since Gabe and Tina had, you, you know, were divers, they had actually bought their own diving equipment, but they were using the air tanks provided by the company. So they put on their equipment and they entered the water with the other divers. Only a few minutes later, though, Gabe and Tina climbed aboard the spoil sport again and Gabe alerted the workers that his dive computer was having some problems. So this is a little device like a watch that Google told me tells you information on the dive like the depth, the pressure around you, oxygen and nitrogen levels and how many minutes worth of oxygen are left in your air tank. So with the faulty machine, they just changed the batteries and then Gabe and Tina entered the water again. And it was during this dive that Tina's life would end in a way that I think would be so terrifying and at the risk of sounding cringy, completely nightmarish. So within two minutes of recommencing their dive, Tina lost consciousness and she sank 30 metres to the bottom of the ocean and this is how it happened so Gabe said that the currents in the water were so much stronger than that anticipated and much stronger than anything Tina had ever experienced in her diving lessons and kind of rattled a bit by this Tina signaled to him that she was trying to retrieve the dive rope which is a rope connected to the back of the boat that you can kind of follow up to the surface of the water but in her panic, she knocked off Gabe's mask and air regulator. And Gabe said it took him a little while for him to recover his sight from the mask being knocked loose. And when he was eventually able to see again, Tina was sinking rapidly to the bottom of the ocean. And sinking very fast because when you're diving in open water, you do have a weight belt that kind of counteracts human buoyancy. So... You know, if you think about it, trying to get to this shipwreck over 16 metres underwater would be really difficult. So they put weights on you to help you get down there easier. And this was also pulling her down to the bottom of the ocean. So as Gabe saw her sinking, he rose to the surface of the water and tried to get help for someone to retrieve her. And he said that in all of his training he'd had, he'd never been told how to rescue someone when there were issues in the dive. So... Other divers that were interviewed after the incident, um, one man, Dr. Stanley Sutz, said that Gabe had been bear-hugging Tina, who was flailing around, and then it was that Gabe resurfaced to get help, and Tina continued falling to the floor. Another diver, um, Gary Stempler, he had his underwater camera with him and was taking pictures of his wife. And, of course, this is in 2003, so it's not a digital camera, but a few weeks later, when the pictures were developed, you could see his wife is in the foreground, and in the background, there's actually a picture 
of Tina lying on the ocean floor and she's kind of lying on her back face up with her limbs out and it's it's really eerie to think you know this woman was so scared and sinking to the bottom of the ocean and all you could see looking up was just the light of the world outside the water I think that that would be so terrifying so in the meantime Gabe had surfaced and he'd climbed back aboard the spoil sport which was the boat that they went out to the shipwreck on and he told the dive instructor Wade Singleton about the emergency this man Wade then retrieved Tina after she had already spent 10 minutes underwater so you know 10 minutes during a scuba dive fine but there was obviously a problem with her um equipment or she was freaking out and so that 10 minutes was a really long time for her to be waiting for someone to come get her so wade went and got tina and she was actually retrieved and taken to a nearby boat called the jazz 2 so not the same boat that they went out there on and on the jazz 2 a doctor attempted to revive her doing cpr for about 40 minutes but she was unable to be resuscitated and at this point to the workers on the dive boat and all the other divers this just like looked like a horrible and tragic accident where something had just gone so terribly wrong and a 26 year old 11 days after her wedding just died in a really really scary scary way it was then Gabe's responsibility to call Tina's family and it was 6am in Birmingham in the US when Gabe called Tommy who was Tina's father and he said that Tina had just drowned and died and later Tommy would recall that for him the rest of the conversation was just a blur he couldn't recall any of it and Gabe told his mother and after she was told she was on a flight out to Australia to support her son and when she arrived and she was consoling him she said you know he could talk to you but he wasn't really aware of the things that he was saying and he, he said I don't know what it means to lose a wife because she was only my wife for 11 days but as far as losing the other half of me my soulmate, I do so Gabe was pretty devastated and he did speak to his pastor over the phone and the pastor said that he was devastated and haunted by the image of Tina sinking while he felt helpless to save her. And after a few weeks, Gabe and his mother returned to Alabama and the Watsons and Thomases met to plan a funeral service for Tina and the pastor that Gabe had just spoken to actually presided over this funeral service. So, like I said before... The Thomases, I mean, they were absolutely devastated, but they did not like the Watsons. And now they did not like the Watsons even more. And so much that the director at the funeral home actually had to open up two separate parlors to accommodate for the two separate families because they did not want to be in the same room together while they were grieving. And I kind of get this. I think that, you know from Cindy and Tommy's perspective you really didn't approve of this guy you didn't like him you didn't really want them to get to get married but you kind of tried to put all of that aside and be happy for your daughter and then not even two weeks 
after they get married. She dies in a really horrific, sudden way where he's the only one there and you weren't able to say goodbye. I think I think I would also be furious. Whether or not, you know, it was an accident or not, I think just... I think I would be really... I'd just say I'd have a lot of strong emotions. Anyway, so since Tina's death wasn't natural, it it was kind of unexpected, it was investigated by the coroner and he undertook her autopsy and found extensive evidence of air embolism, which is essentially when the vessels to the heart or the brain are blocked because of little air bubbles, which means that the blood can't get past and so oxygen can't get to those organs. And so because of this, uh, Professor Williams, the coroner, decided... And so because of this, the um, man undertaking the autopsy decided that Tina's death was caused by drowning. But again... The investigation kind of went one step further and there was a coronial inquiry to be held into her death. And an inquiry kind of, it's not a formal hearing. It's kind of more just asking what were the circumstances around this death, considering it was um, unexpected or unnatural. And is there anyone who might have been connected to or responsible for that death. So it can't actually lay blame on particular parties like a hearing, like like a criminal hearing can, but the evidence that the coroner finds can be referred onto the prosecutor's office and they can decide whether or not there's enough evidence to secure a conviction on that person. So it's kind of like a preliminary step. So... At this point, Gabe had already left the country and he didn't return for the coronial inquest. He didn't give any evidence in the inquiry, but he did have lawyers acting on his behalf and giving evidence on his behalf. And during the inquest, a lot of prosecutors and during the inquest, prosecutors submitted that Gabe's story had a lot of contradictions. Importantly, it contradicted the information that was stored on the dive computer, which I'd mentioned earlier. And this was tracking information about depth and time. And the data saved on the dive computer would suggest that Gabe didn't actually surface as soon after trying to help Tina as he said that he did. So the depth monitored on the computer would have suggested that he was actually underwater for a lot longer than he claimed and would have had enough time to kill her. So prosecutors suggested that Gabe had actually turned off Tina's air regulator and held her there until she was unconscious. And this was the bear hug that one of the other divers had seen him doing and had described. So they submitted that after she was unconscious, Gabe turned the air back on and then just let her sink to the bottom of the ocean. And then he surfaced to get help. And they also had police divers reenact that scene as they believed that it had occurred. And one of the crucial pieces of evidence brought forward was that Tommy, Tina's father, claimed that Gabe actually increased Tina's life insurance policy and made himself the sole beneficiary. And now, if you have watched 
any episode of Forensic Files, you will know that an increase in the life insurance policy pretty much buys you a one-way ticket to murder town. And it this just, in every case, one, the husband did it, and two, there's a life insurance policy increase. And this just, for me, when you hear this, you're like, yep, yeah, that's it. All right, pack it up, boys. Like, this was it. He's, did, he's done it. Anyway, at the conclusion of the inquest, the coroner did formally charge Gabe and said, David Gabriel Watson, I formally charge you that on the 22nd day of October 2003, at the site of the historical shipwreck Yongala, 48 nautical miles southeast of the port of Townsville in the state of Queensland, David Gabriel Watson murdered Christina May Watson. So remember at this point, Gabe is still in the US and he managed to avoid actually being extradited back to Australia for around six months, but he did eventually come back to face trial. During the murder trial, the prosecution pretty much hinged their evidence on Gabe's expertise at diving, but he also still failed to take any steps to actually save his wife. As I said before, Gabe was an experienced diver. He'd actually completed over 55 open water dives, which might not sound like a lot to do something only 55 times, but in the context of scuba diving, that's quite a lot and you can gain a lot of experience doing dives that many times. But Tina was the complete opposite. She had done 11 lessons and none of them had actually been in the open water. They'd only been in estuaries where you don't have the same currents as those in the ocean. And the particular dive that Gabe and Tina did at the SS Yongala was known as a red dive. And this means that it was really high in difficulty due to those water currents. And therefore, it was only recommended for really advanced divers. Gabe and Tina had also refused on two occasions offers of an orientation dive with instructors while on the trip, which would help them understand the area that they were diving in and help them feel more comfortable. And therefore avoid risks of something like this happening and there's nothing that really evidentiates this but I think that since Gabe was the more experienced diver between them he kind of would have been making the decisions about the dive in terms of what dive to go on what company to go with and whether or not to refuse the training dive and help And I think that Tina would have seen him as a diving expert. She would have trusted his opinion as to what dive would be suitable for her and what help she would need. And like I said, there's nothing that really substantiates that. But I think just thinking about the context of their relationship and knowing how skilled Gabe was and how skilled Tina wasn't, you would kind of assume that Tina would put a lot of faith and trust in Gabe to know what dives were suitable for her. The prosecutor said that despite what Gabe said earlier, he was actually trained in rescuing panicked divers. This was something he'd learned in his experience throughout his diving life, but it was also discussed in that safety briefing on the spoil sport at around 9am before they ever entered the water. So Gabe was Tina's diving buddy, they call it, and that meant that he was responsible for helping her in an emergency situation by inflating her buoyancy control device, which is kind of like, it serves the same purpose as a life vest. It's just filled up with air so that that person can float. 
And he also failed to take off her weight belt, which is what I said earlier was really contributing to her sinking rapidly because the weight of it just pulled her down. And he also knew, as lots of divers do know, that your oxygen tank actually has two air receivers to it. One that the diver is using and then an alternative one that you can actually give to someone else. And he never did any of these things. They also introduced evidence that while Tina was on the Jazz 2 getting CPR for 40 minutes, Gabe didn't sit with her. He stayed on the spoil sport. He was on a completely different boat for the entire time that people dragged his wife's body from the water and were trying to bring her back to life. He wasn't sitting there next to them. He he was off on this other boat minding his own business. One of the people who were attempting to revive Tina, but were ultimately unsuccess, uh, unsuccessful, said that when Gabe did go to her and sat next to her lifeless body, instead of crying, he just made these weird quacking, croaking sounds. Which, look, the husband did it, that's all I'm going to say. Like, <laughs> God forbid I ever get married. Or I, I just, this scares me so much, just not knowing what the person that you sleep next to at night is capable of. So, Gabe in Australia, remember, was initially charged for murder, but he actually pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to four years in prison, which blows my mind. And under Section 310 of the Queensland Criminal Code, the maximum sentence for manslaughter is actually life in prison. So the judge knew that they had the power to put him in prison for the rest of his life but they thought, nah, four years, that'll do it. That, that's enough for this woman's life. But to add insult to injury, the judge said that that sentence would be suspended after Gabe serves 12 months. So he only needed to serve 12 months in prison, and then he was free. Because of the outrage of that sentence, it was put on appeal, um, and it was increased to a whopping 18 months before suspension. So, yeah, he he could go back, walk on the streets, do what he wanted, start a new family after only a year and a half in prison for being responsible for the death of his wife, even if he didn't um, actually turn off her oxygen tank, because there's not really any evidence of that. But he did at least fail to take steps to save her life when, like I said, there were at least three things that he could have done with the buoyancy belt, taking off the weights and giving her oxygen. And he just neglected to do any of these things. And he was in the position to know exactly what to do to save her because of all of his training. And he just chose not to. For your wife of 11 days, it blows my mind. It really does. At this point, Tina's family, the Thomases, were just so obviously and understandably devastated with the result from the Australian trial. And they would later say, you know, there wasn't really any trial in Australia because the whole thing was just a farce. It was a joke. It was a coronial inquest and then a year and a half in prison. It just was not adequate to 
I guess, punish Gagey, but also to honour Tina and the horrible way that she died. When Gabe had finished serving his measly time in prison, he did return to Alabama and he was again prosecuted, but this time under the American jurisdiction. The Alabama prosecutor asked the Australian authorities to send over any evidence they had, but the Australian authorities actually refused to do this unless the Alabama prosecutor's office assured the Australian government that they wouldn't pursue the death sentence. And this is because the death sentence isn't available in Australia. And so even though if in America it could be tried as a capital case, in order to prosecute it all, the prosecutor's hand was forced into pursuing life without parole as a maximum sentence. They couldn't do this as a death sentence case. In August 2010, Watson was charged with murder and then another charge of kidnapping by deception. And it was put before a grand jury in October 2010, and Gabe actually attended court with his new wife. Yep, that man remarried, and I wonder what her insurance policy looks like. (laughs) Um, So, in the Alabama trial, the prosecutors pretty much relied on the same evidence as what was brought up in the Australian trial. They argued that he turned off the oxygen tank or at least was just negligent in not taking any steps to save her. But Justice Tommy Nail actually ruled that evidence of Gabe's behaviour after Tina's death was inadmissible and he also prevented Tommy Thomas, Tina's father, from giving evidence with respect to the increased life insurance policy. And I think that these two things made it really difficult for the prosecution to mount a solid case. I think the rest of the evidence makes a good case, and maybe this is because I watch too much Forensic Files, but life insurance policy increases are just so sus, and I think it shows some level of premeditation, especially when you consider that Gabe at this time was strapped for cash. He was a recent college graduate, he was actually working as a bubble wrap salesman, and he didn't have a large income, so there's definitely a financial motive here. And you could definitely look at it that increasing the life insurance policy was actually the first steps of him carrying out this brutal murder. In February 2012, Gabe was acquitted for a lack of evidence, and this was without the defense having even presented their case. And we have a similar rule here in Australia. It's called a summary judgment. So if the judge looks at the prosecution's evidence and thinks there is no reasonable chance of you succeeding on this case, it's going to be a waste of time, it's going to be a waste of resources, then, you know, the judge can shut it down then and there. There's, there's just nothing to go off for the, for the prosecution. And I think that in that case... There has to be, you know, the claim has to be a real farce. And I don't think that's what this was. I think there was evidence, even without the life insurance and his behavior after Tina's death, that would have pointed some blame onto him. And I just, yeah, he he walked away a free man after this. And Tina's family was left with no satisfying acknowledgement and no closure of what happened to Tina. And... Gabe never really paid for what he did. 
not too long after Tina's mother and father, Cindy and Tommy, actually made a complaint to the police that flowers and gifts they were leaving on Tina's grave were being vandalized and removed. And it actually got so bad that they ended up chaining flowers and gifts to her grave. But each time they came back, they were still being removed and being vandalized. So the police took this quite seriously and they set up a camera at the cemetery and it actually showed that Gabe was visiting Tina's grave and using bolt cutters to remove the flowers and gifts that were left for her. And then he threw them in the rubbish. I think this is just such disgusting behavior and it really shows that he just did not care for Tina at all. He so callously ended her life and let her die in such a cruel and painful way. And even after her passing, he still can't leave her or her family in peace. I just, it really blows my mind. And to think about his new wife, um, I wonder what she knows and what he has told her. I think that if I were ever dating someone with a, a, a shady, sketchy past, oh my god, my paranoid mind could not sit still. I would be so scared, but... In terms of tying up some loose ends, the insurance payout from Tina's death did only go to Tommy, her father, and Gabe didn't get any of it. So that's really good. Happy about that. Um, The diving company that ran the tour was also fined $6,000 for failing to follow proper protocol since there was actually meant to be a supervisor with each diving group. But there wasn't one on this occasion and so there was no one to look over Tina and Gabe And maybe this person would have actually used their rescue knowledge to save Tina's life rather than just twiddling their thumbs and sitting on a boat. Unfortunately, in 2014, Tommy Thomas died after years of fighting to get justice for Tina. And he passed away after a battle with cancer. And his wife, Cindy, simply said, he is holding our sweet daughter now. So that's it, everybody. That is the case of Tina Watson. And to finish the story I started telling earlier, when I was, I think I would have been around 10 years old, and um, my mom just mentioned this case, and I was like, oh, like, what do you mean, mom? And she was like, oh, yeah, it's the man who turned off his wife's oxygen tank while they were scuba diving. And I, my brain, my little child brain, I think, exploded because... I just couldn't understand something so callous. And I think that feeling of her being underwater, I think she was already a bit freaked out because the currents were so strong. And then all of a sudden you just can't breathe. And then you're just like falling and falling and falling. And I hope, I hope for her sake that she was unconscious as she sank at the bottom of the ocean. Because I think what would really make this absolutely unbearable is if you were still awake and just feeling yourself full and not being able to do anything about it and just staring up and seeing everybody around you continuing the dive and just going on normally while you're panicking and no one can tell I think that that would just be heinous um anyway tell me what you all thought of this 
If you have any requests, please email them to me at nightmarishmurderpodcast at gmail.com. I'm setting up an Instagram account as well, so I'll post some pictures of Tina and Gabe. I'm not going to post the picture of Tina lying at the bottom of the ocean. I just think, you know, you don't know whether or not she had passed away at that point. I just think... I just, I don't feel comfortable posting that, but I will post other things. And look, if you do want to find that picture, it's very readily available on the internet if you do want to. Um, so yeah, that was that. Very horrifying case. Um, but I'll catch you on the next one. Tell your mum to listen.